0: So, if you've come prepared with your Bibles, now's the time. We're going to turn to 1 John. are going to read from chapter 1, verse 8. And before we do anything else, we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these moments that we share now together. And Lord, we just acknowledge that our need is not really for more information. It's not for another sermon, another teaching, Lord, our real need is for transformation, for that which that can only come through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we want to ask that you would continue. We thank you that there has been such a strong focus and a sense on your presence this morning, evident amongst us, calling us home. We thank you that you've enabled that reality through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray right now in this moment, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would your words come alive and would they accomplish all that you desire in us in this moment? Just let that wind of your spirit blow afresh through this place today, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First John chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to read together. Let me introduce it and set it up this way. We're just studying through this letter that 1 John writes. And in the preceding weeks, I know some of you have been here, some of you haven't. Let me set it up in this way. 1 John, or John the Apostle, has something specifically in mind as he writes this letter. That's a good thing. He's not writing for no purpose, he's writing for a specific purpose. He's writing as he reaches the end of his life having lived a full life, having seen some things. And he has a passion to see a people whose hearts are set on fire for God. That apathy, that any sort of false, t- that anything that would distract us from the purposes of God would be removed. That we would stand steadfast and strong as a witness to the glory of God. That's his passion. But you know, if you have something in mind, there's got to be a process of building foundations. Over the past couple of weeks, I mentioned one project that I've been working on at home, some monkey bars, but we've also been trying to re-establish a playground for our children. We were very generously a few years ago donated a second-hand playground from some good friends of ours, and I've noticed the playgrounds are a little, little bigger, a little more fancy than they once were. Playgrounds back in my day, you're lucky if you had a little swing tied to a tree, that was what you grew up on, whereas these days they come with all the latest mod cons, air conditioning, flat screen TVs, and maybe not quite that extreme, but they're two-story, this one, it's got the slide out the side, it's got swings off here, it's got little bells and whistles everywhere, it's a lovely playground, but it was second-hand, and of course you get a second-hand playground that you've dismantled, and it never quite goes back together the same way, does it? you ever get to the end of a project and there's a few pieces left over? and You think, how important are these pieces? Was that? Does that one screw make any difference? Don't know, perhaps it does, perhaps it doesn't. There's only one way to find out. And to be honest, when I did assemble it, I didn't put a lot of effort. I had a lot of other jobs to do, so I thought I'll just kind of plonk it down on the ground. The ground wasn't really very even, and our block is a little sloped. So there it sat for a little while until the first storm came. Do you know what happened to my playground? The girls loved their playground. They were up in it, jumping around. And first big storm came, playground, flat on the ground, as you could expect. So I propped it back up again. I thought, well, I probably need to do some proper reinforcing work here, but I'll just stick a few big stones, try and patch it up, put it together. Do you know what happened the second time a big storm came? Flat on its back. Again. So the girls, of course, were very devastated. And I said, look, when I get some time, I'm going to build this thing properly so that it is earthquake-proof. It is not able to be moved. And that time came a few weeks ago. I said, girls, it's time to build the playground. And we set out there. They were very excited in my house with four young girls on any project, in fact, on anything in life. It's amazing. There's four little girls, but there's 15 opinions. Anyone lived in a house like that? Fifteen opinions... Liz is putting up her hands. She lived in a house of three girls. I wasn't actually asking for a show of hands. Where's the rest of you? No, we won't. But full of opinions, but uh, not always willing to actually put opinions into action. So I said, let's go. Let's build it. We're very excited. They'd drawn up the plans for this 17-story treehouse with all the bells and whistles. And I started digging the first hole. And it took about 10 seconds and they said, Dad, what are you doing? You told us we were fixing up the playground and you're digging holes. And I said, well, sweetheart, here's something you need to learn in life and in playgrounds. If you want your playground to stand, then you need to build a sturdy foundation. So they came back a couple of days later and they said, Dad, you've only still built two holes and a couple of posts. And I said, well, You've got to understand that to build a good foundation, it takes work, it takes effort, and it takes time. Now I'll tell that story for this reason. John has something in mind, but as he begins his letter, he makes it very clear that unless the foundations are sturdy, unless they are built and able to withstand that which is to come, forget the playground. Don't even bother doing anything else unless... You've got the correct foundations. And so we've looked. John started off, the way he starts his letter, he says, there is truth. There is truth. The world will say, well, there's not really any truth. There's just, pick a feeling. But John says, no, there's truth. We've seen it. We've touched it. We've known it. We've experienced it. We've encountered it. We're not put on this planet to choose in a wilderness from conflicting views. There is the truth of the gospel, which shines as light in the midst of the darkness. There is fellowship that is on offer. There's a God who invites us not to a religion, not to activities, but to relationship. And there is a walk that we must walk, which is what Adam talked about last week. Walking in the light. And I want to look this morning at another foundation. Not only this is, is this a wonderful foundation, this is one of my favorite passages in all of this little letter, potentially in all of the New Testament, although that's a very big call. So forget I said that. There's a lot of good, good ones in there. But this is one that if it's not underlined, you need to check that it is here each and every day of your life. This is what it says. 1 John verse 8. If we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I love John all the way through. He's so clear, isn't he? He's so black and white, so desiring just to call it the way it is. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you think you're excused, just ask the person next to you. Am I sinless? Do I live this planet in perfection? Be ready for what they might reveal to you. But not only is there a certainty of sin. Here's the wonderful thing. There is a certainty of salvation. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, and we're going to come back to that particular word there, very important, He is faithful. Who is faithful? Is this based on our faithfulness, on our works, or on His? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, don't miss this, all unrighteousness. So I want you to catch here, there's no exceptions and there is no limitations. John is saying, here's what you've got to understand about sin and about salvation. Sin is certain, but so is the salvation that he has provided. There's no exceptions. There's no limitations. He doesn't say, well, I know what Adam was doing last week. I know what you were doing last month, and I'm not so sure that's going to be covered. It is Without exception, without limitation, and it is without qualifications. There's no list. It doesn't say he's faithful to forgive us if. If we do this, if we live a good life, if we cleanse ourselves up first, if we jump through hoops, if we climb to the top of the mountain, if you get to that place, then you will be worthy of what he is offering. Do you see the certainty of sin, but the certainty of sin. Of his salvation. Let's read on a little bit further because chapter 2 is a similar theme. He says, actually verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, remembering this is John, end of his life, Papa John, writing to people he loves, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. Don't miss this. See, he's saying my real heart here is actually that you wouldn't sin at all. There should be the power of God not just to cleanse you, but for you to conquer and to overcome the sin that is in your life. But recognizing that we do fall short, and he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, long word, come back to it, for our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. We could camp there for a while, but two key words, an advocate, and a propitiation. Say propitiate. Propiti- 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 say it three times really fast. That was all right. That was okay. What does it mean, though? What does it mean? An advocate literally means to plead a case on behalf of someone else. So the first thing he's saying with this picture, he's saying, recognize this, you have someone who is up there in heaven having conquered sin and the grave, he's been risen from the dead and there's no mystery who it is. He says, it's Jesus and he is standing there as your advocate pleading your case. And not only is he your divine lawyer, if you like to use that, but he is the propitiation. What does it mean? It means someone who has satisfied the legal requirements. Let me find where I am in my notes. Bear with me. It's very important. Some translations say this, the atoning sacrifice for the purpose of reconciliation. So here is the picture. Here we have in our camp, the savior of the world, the conquering savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not like I don't want you to misinterpret what's happening here because the advocacy and the propitiation are part of the same saving work. So it's not like we sin and then he's got to spill his his blood again. Adam messes up and the Lord's like, oh, dear, here we go again. Need to somehow shed my blood again to cover his sin. But he stands there having paid the price and as our advocate pleading our case. Adam makes mistakes, which he does occasionally, not as much as me, occasionally. And the Lord is there, Jesus, and he stretches forth his nail-pierced hands. And he says, well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I have something to present here. And he pulls forth the crown of thorns. He speaks of the suffering and the whip, the whipping, the beating, the the ridicule, the scorn. And then finally he proclaims the victory cry, it is finished. You see, that is the reality of what we have. Each and every one of us, a Savior who has saved us, and He is standing as our advocate and as the one who forever will proclaim what He has done for us. This is the certainty of sin, but the certainty of His salvation. And very quickly, I know we're running out of time, but there's three aspects of this that I really want to bring out that I think is so important in terms of building this foundation. We've got to have this foundation. And number one is simply this. All the way through here, John is saying, you've got to be a people of certainty. Got to be a people of certainty. There's got to be a certainty of sin, and there's got to be a certainty of salvation had this interesting conversation with someone recently, and uh, I must confess, as a part of my job, one thing that does frustrate me from time to time is that I'm surrounded by Christians. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I love being surrounded by Christians, but my job is involving Christians. My kids go to a Christian school. So that's great. Christian people are wonderful, but I do miss from time to time having conversations with people who are outside the church. I love that. So in the past, I've intentionally played sport and interacted with people from different worldviews, and I enjoy it. So I had this conversation recently, would have been a couple of weeks ago, these very same monkey bars that keep featuring. I saw someone on Gumtree who was selling some metal poles, and I said to my wife, we need metal poles, as I say to her often, we need them. We must have these metal poles. So she said, all right, go and get your metal poles. And I drove out to a a particular gentleman's house. His name was Peter, an older guy. He'd retired. He had a um, particular business that he'd run and he was clearing a whole lot of stuff out, including some old poles. And he was up for a chat. So we were loading the poles in the car. And of course, conversation turns to the inevitable question. He says, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor of a church. And you never know what the response is there. But let me say... More often than not, it's not a positive response. But he was genuinely intrigued. His first question was, he said, well, you're not from one of those weird churches, are you? (laughs) And I said, well, define weird. We're a little strange. He said, well, you know, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, those cult, those really cultish ones. I said, no, we're not any cults, we're not Mormons, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, we're a Christian church, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, we believe in what he'd done, something along those kind of lines. And at that point, he was genuinely interested in having a conversation. He said, well, tell me about that, I want to know what that's about. And I heard his story, he'd come over as an immigrant from Holland with his family as a young boy, and he said, my parents were religious and they'd gone to church a couple of times in Australia. And there was some falling out, and they'd never been back to church since. He said, I haven't set foot in a church building for nearly 60 years. So we talked a bit about that, and then conversation went elsewhere. And, and he said to me, he said, so what do you make of all this stuff going on in the world? So we went from that to the world. I said, well, what, what do you mean by all the stuff? There's a lot of things going on in the world. He's like, well, you know, there's just stuff. There's wars. There's, there's evil. There's, there's horrible. I mean, how do you make sense of a crazy world? And I said, well, for me, it's very simple. All that we see in the world around us is symptomatic of one fundamental problem. Sin. It's one word, sin. And the problem is not just that sin is out there. The problem is that sin is in here. That's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus died. And he thought about that for a moment and said something along the lines of this. He said, I would love to live with that sort of clarity. Or I would love if, if everything in my life was that clear. And that was the end of the conversation. He didn't fall down on his knees in repentance. He didn't, there was nothing like that. I hope that if nothing else, he found a Christian that he didn't think was weird. Maybe you did. I'm not sure. Point being this. It made me think, you know, living as a Christian, one of the greatest gifts and one of the realities we never want to lose sight of is the certainty that we have. There is a certainty. There's a certainty of sin, but there is the certainty of a savior and the salvation that he offers to you and that he offers to me. And we're in a world that's continually blurring the lines. Here's one example just from the last week I happened to see, I listened actually to a sermon preached by a Someone who's called one of the most influential pastors in New York City, First Corinthian Baptist Church, 10,000 members, and he made this statement. And I actually went to listen to it because I didn't agree with the statement, but I want to hear it in context. I want to hear the whole sermon, but it was equally of the same vein. He, He made this observation. He said there was a time when you'd see people in the pulpit say, if you don't believe Jesus, you're going to hell. That's insanity, he suggested. That's not what Jesus believes. The key is just that you believe God and whatever your path to God, I celebrate that. Whatever your path might be, I celebrate that. Personally, I celebrate that. And the church cheered and we could say a lot about that. I don't want to speak evil of a church or a particular pastor, but I do want to address a theology that we hear increasingly, not just in the world, but in churches. And I regularly hear from Christian people, personally in conversation. I regularly try and not enter into debates online because they never go well. Along a similar theme, and the theme is simply this: Do we really have to be so black and white? Can't we just broaden the net a little? Can't we water it down? Can't we just, you know, let people love whoever they want to love and be whoever they want to be and do whatever they want to do? You know, like I love, I love this. I love the, the truth of Jesus, and I, I love the account of him, but can't we just water it down a little bit? Does it have to be so black and white? Do we have to talk about sin? Do we have to get so real with it and talk about the fact that there's a hell and there's, there's judgment? As someone, I forget who it was, said some years ago said that people say that if you don't believe in Jesus, that you'll spend eternity in hell. And his conclusion was it's not unloving to say that. It's unloving not to say that because there's a certainty of sin, but there is a certainty of his salvation that he has offered to us. See, the problem is we can't just blur the lines and hope that the foundation is going to stand. Be A little bit like me saying to the girls, well, let's cut a few corners. Let's just leave off a few pillars and see how the playground will go. We all know where that's going to inevitably end. See, John puts it so clearly. It's crystal clear. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And he goes on to say we make God a liar. How do we make God a liar? Well, if there was another way, then Jesus died for nothing. He didn't really have to die. There was another path. But you lose all your clarity, don't you? If there's many paths, well, how do we even get there? How do we know if we're on the right path? How do we even know where we're going? What are we supposed to do? There's there's this watering down, but there's this loss of clarity. We need pulpits filled with the clarity of the gospel. And one of the foundation is the certainty of sin, the certainty of his salvation. There's a quote you've probably heard before, a Frenchman authored a book, Democracy in America, back in the early 1800s, and he traveled America to find what the source of her greatness was. He said this, "'I looked throughout America to find where her greatness originated. I looked forward in her harbors, on her shorelines, in her fertile fields, boundless prairies, in her gold mines, in her vast world commerce. But it was not there. It was not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness.'" Did I understand the secret of her success? And I would ask us, are our pulpits, and more importantly, are our lives aflame with righteousness? Or are we watering down the truth? Trying to somehow still include Jesus, but, well, just whatever your path to God is, that's fine. There is a certainty, and we need to be a certain people. And very quickly, I've got two more. That's number one. We've got to be a certain people. But secondly, we've got to be a confessing people. Verse 9, if we confess our sins. You see, John wants us not only to be certain about sin, but certain about what we are to do with sin. What do we do? It's there. It's certain there. It's certainly there. We can't deny its presence. What do we do with it? He says confess. What does it mean to confess? Well, two aspects. Number one, it means to take responsibility. We live in an age where no one wants to take responsibility for anything. do I didn't do that. I didn't do that. So we take responsibility, but then we do something with it. And all we've got to do is bring it to him. If we confess, if we own up and say, Jesus, here it is. Here's my sin. He's faithful. And he is just. See, we live in a society where rather than dealing with things, we want to deny it. Silly example but very pertinent to our current household. We have developed this pattern in our girls. I'm not sure where this came from. Maybe we're not feeding them enough food. But we're two in particular, but others have been known as well, to be guilty of this sin, they sneak into the pantry at all hours of the evening and they help themselves. And it's never to healthy food. Someone after the early service said, maybe you should just fill your pantry with healthy things. carrots. I mean, that'd quickly quickly—they'd lose their interest, wouldn't they, perhaps? But they sneak in and they help themselves to whatever they feel like. Never healthy things. So my wife actually suggested last week, she said, can you go and get a lock for our pantry? Because we cannot control our children. And we find, you know, under their pillows is hidden little wrappers and evidence of their sinful behaviour around every corner. The funny thing is, even when you catch them in the very act chocolate cookie in hand, chocolate chips smeared all over one side. I say, sweetheart, have you taken something from the cupboard? No. No, no, daddy. I would not do such a thing. Who would do that? I say, well, I can see the cookie in your hand. And then pretty soon denying moves to excusing. And they say, well, well, yes, all right, I took the cookie. I took the cookie, but the cookie was there, and I just happened to walk past, and it looked at me, and I looked at it, and there was this moment, and you know, I just thought, I'm really doing it a favor. I mean, it's sitting there unloved and all by itself, and I just thought if I help myself to, it's just one cookie, Dad. I mean, really? Is it really that bad? Is it really that bad? Pray for me, please. Sometimes I say, well, let's invite Mr. Woodenspoon into the conversation, get his opinion, see if he can help us out of this cycle of denial and excusing. But John is saying, let us not be a people who just deny and excuse. We know how to deal with it, so deal with it. He's already paid the price for the true believer, repentance and confession. It's just a way of life. We don't want to carry around this stuff. We want to just confess it. We want to get it out in the open and allow him to deal with it. Spurgeon puts it this way. I love his his simple phrases. He says, sin will always rise. It is. It's a sinful planet. And we are sinful people, if we're truly honest. It will always rise, but it must not rain. That is our duty. It will rise. But what are we going to do with sin when it arises? We're going to confess it. We're going to leave it at the foot of the cross. And point three, really quickly. So we're called to be a certain people, a confessing people, but we're also called, and I don't want to leave you without this reality, and this ties into Peter's word. We're called to be a conquering people. See, the tomb should be the place as we meet with Jesus of the greatest testimony. We're called to overcome. We're called to triumph. Romans 8.37, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. And John will talk about this if you look ahead twice in this chapter. He'll talk about overcoming. In chapter 3, chapter 5, again, this theme, we're called to be overcomers. You see, God's provision is not just to cover sin, not to just give us something that you know will we'll make do while we scrape our way through this side of eternity. Now, he's given us the provision not to cover, but the provision to conquer. His grace is not an invitation to rest on our laurels, but it's an invitation to get into the battle. And John acknowledges that. He says, on the one hand, I want you not to sin. But I know that you will. But if you do remember, there's, there's a battle, there's a war here. You know what to do. You've got an advocate. You've got a propitiation. He is cheering you on and you are called to live in victory. And we're going to focus more on that as we go and develop this picture in the series. But there's two realities here, which I cannot help but just mentioning before we bring this to a close. What does it mean to be an overcomer? You see, so often I think we've, we've distorted what it means to be an overcomer. We've taught in the church that it's having successful lives, that it's having money, that's having wealth and, and fame and influence and, you know, all those things are fine in and of themselves. But, you know, there is many people even in the church I can think of who can build successful ministries, who can do a lot of things. But there's very few people I know who genuinely can overcome. This is what it means. It's not talking about success and fame. I mean, this is John who'd been with Jesus. He'd he'd endured hardship. He had seen himself. People set alight, believers, for their faith, even unto death. I think he would say this. This is what I mean by overcoming someone who's saved by God's grace, baptized in the love of the Father, refusing to conform to the world, responding to the Spirit, accepting only God's standard, standing firm through the fires of temptation, rejoicing through suffering for his name, loving not our lives unto death, so that we might shake the gates of hell and live as a burning witness to the living God. That's the picture he's talking about of an overcoming people. You see, Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. So often people think, well, I don't, I don't need God. I don't need a crutch. Help me through. Now, God will heal and God will restore and he'll love and he'll call you home. But it's not just so you can live a successful life. It's so he can send you forth as a fiery witness to rescue people from the clutches of damnation and set hearts ablaze with a love for his son. There is a call for his people, for the bride of Christ to arrive as The conquering ones. And I don't want to leave you without that reality. So we're going to do something specifically this morning as the worship team comes back. We're going to finish with a song. We're going to join around the Lord's table. And I want to give us an opportunity. In fact, why don't you just close your eyes as I lead us into this moment and and I'll explain why we're going to do it and I'll explain how we're going to do it. I want to give us an opportunity, as I've talked about it, even as Peter did earlier in the service, for the Holy Spirit to just make it really clear, first of all, that there is a certainty. There's a certainty to sin, and there's a certainty to his salvation and to our Savior. And that as we recognize that reality, there is a call for us. And I I don't mind whether you've been walking with the Lord for 10 minutes or for 10,000 years. There is a call for us to get real with sin. And to recognize that we know what to do with it. It's very simple. All we do is we don't deny it. We deal with it. And we say, God, I'm confessing this to you. And then as we come and as we recognize the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body that was broken for us, we leave as conquerors in Christ. So I want to give us an opportunity to practice exactly that this morning. And we're going to take communion at the front. I know sometimes we take communion by standing around the outside of the auditorium. We do that intentionally to gather around the Lord's table. But I feel like this is an invitation this morning just between you and the Lord. An opportunity to examine your hearts and your lives. An opportunity that if there is things that you need to confess of, that you can do that. You can get real with God. And we're going to have some people this morning. I'm going to ask some of the elders and the board both to help me distribute the elements, but also to be available. We had a number of people this morning at the early service. We just wanted to confess some things. That passage really is talking about confessing to God. It's not saying you have to confess it to others, but there is other passages and there is at times a power to bring into the light the stuff that holds us back. And so if you need this morning to confess sin, then you can do that. And there will be a few people available depending on how many there is, as I said, people were very open and just coming forward and just confessing what they needed to confess. And then you can move from that place of confession to receiving the elements. You don't have to confess, as I said, if you want to come just in your own leisure and kneel at the front here, we'll bring the elements to you. And I want to remind you that not only do we receive the provision to wash our sins away, but we receive the power to go forth and conquer. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in your life and at work in my life. So as the worship team leads us, can I, Peter, can I get you to help me just lift this? And if the and elders who's here... If you want to confess to someone, they'll be standing just in front of the communion table here. And as I said, if you haven't done this before, just at your own time, if you come forward and you kneel at the front, we'll bring you the elements, the bread and the cup. And if you'd like prayer this morning, you're very welcome. We um, love to pray with you. After you receive communion, you can just remain standing at the front and the prayer team will come around and just pray with you. But let's end in this way. Lord, just thank you for... All that you've done so far this morning, thank you for the message that's just been on your heart. And I pray that that's what we'd hear. Give us listening ears, Lord, to hear what your spirit is saying to each one of us. And we thank you in advance for what you want to do right now. As we just come and we confess what we need to confess and we receive afresh your provision that you've made for our sin to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the power that we need to overcome sin. Pray these things in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.